Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 38. Today, we're asking the question, why did Jesus spit on a blind man? Now, that's a pretty weird question when you think about it, and it's a very weird incident. Jesus really did spit in the eyes of a blind man. How odd. Today's passages feature a Genesis episode, chapter 40, where Joseph gets out of jail because of his ability to interpret dreams. Now, I almost did that as the focus passage for the day in order to ask the question, does God still speak to his people in dreams and visions? However, good news, since Joseph interprets some more dreams in tomorrow's Genesis passage, we'll just wait for tomorrow to have that discussion. I also erroneously told you yesterday that today's Job 6 passage featured more of Eliphaz's blather, but I was factually incorrect, I'm happy to say. It actually has Job's reply, which is much more solid. In Romans 10 today, we are reading about the incredibly glorious truth of righteousness by faith alone, not by works. And in Mark 10, we have Jesus teaching about marriage and divorce, as well as challenging the rich young ruler to give it all away. I want to invite you, friends, to check out our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. And that's exactly what our question uh, questioner did to submit his question for the day. He went to BibleReadingPodcast.com and submitted a comment and the form of a question. And so we're spending a whole episode on that most excellent question for today. If you have a question about one of our uh, passages we've already covered or one that's coming up, just leave it as a comment and we will get it and hopefully be able to cover it on a future episode. I also want to encourage you to share the show on social media. We have people that do that all the time, Brandy and Pam and Stan and all of you out there that do that. Thank you so much for sharing the show. When you share the show, you reach people that I can't and hopefully they listen. And it doesn't really matter if they hear my opinion or whatever, but we are talking about Jesus. We are talking about the gospel. We are reading the word of God and we want to spread that far and wide. So if you think about it, share the show on social media, share the post, share the Facebook page, all that kind of good stuff. Let everybody know about it. So as I mentioned earlier, we have a submitted question to cover today, and it actually came from two different listeners, as funny as that is. As I said yesterday, my old friend Courtney Johnson from Birmingham wrote in and said this, I would love for you to expand, if possible, on Mark 8, 22 through 26. Verse 24 has always captured my attention. There are no mistakes by Jesus or accidents. Amen. I completely agree. He says, I would love your insights on what this passage means and why it's in the Bible. My wife Susan and I love this podcast. So, Courtney and Susan were parents of some wonderful teenagers in a youth group that I was the youth pastor of way back in the day, in the 90s. It wasn't my first ministry job, but it was my first real ministry job as an adult. The Johnsons were some of the best parents, counselors, and leaders I have ever worked with in 20-plus years in ministry. Church people like them are worth their weight in inkjet ink, or platinum, or palladium, or 
radium or plutonium or whatever material is worth at least 100 times the value of gold. The Johnsons have seen extreme suffering in this life, the kind of pain that nobody should have had to walk through. I know it has crushed them many, many times over, but praise God, they have stayed faithful and hundreds of people, maybe thousands, have seen that and rejoiced and been strengthened by their testimony. I look forward to the day that Jesus returns and wipes every tear from their eyes. Maranatha. One of the harder things about being in ministry is actually leaving one church and the amazing people that are in that one church and moving to another church. God has blessed Janet, my wife, and I and our families with some incredible people in literally every church we have ever served in. But leaving behind those incredible people to move on to the next assignment or the next state, it can honestly be heartrending. I'm glad we've done it because if we hadn't, we wouldn't have met some of the amazing people we've met. But I'm also glad that we have eternity to look forward to in order to see those relationships from the past reconnected and deepened. So interestingly... This same question was asked by my eight-year-old daughter tonight on the way home from cheerleading practice. Uh, and I thought it was funny. I thought maybe she had seen the beginnings of this post on my computer or something like that. But no, she had the question after reading the passage yesterday. Our family is going through uh, the Bible together. And so it it concerned her as well that, that Jesus, it took two attempts seemingly to heal this man. So uh, let me say this. I'm going to take a stab at the answer, and I need to phrase it in that way, because taking a stab at an answer to this question is honestly about as good as we can do here, because the Bible does not explain this unique situation to us at all. And to review, here's the passage. It happened. We read it a couple of days ago, and I'm happy to go back if you have a question and cover a passage we've already gone through. So this is Mark 8, 22 through 26. The disciples came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to Jesus and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village. Spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him home, saying, Don't even going to go into the village. So honestly, <laughs> most curious thing about me, that to me in this passage, is that Jesus spit in the man's eyes. That's weird. Now, nobody's asked me about that one. And when we read it in our family Bible time, none of the kids chuckled at it. I don't know. Maybe they weren't listening. I, I chuckled at it. That's really, really strange. And the best answer I've heard, even though nobody asked, I'm curious. The best answer I've heard for why Jesus would do that came from John Calvin. And John Calvin's kind of take on the healings of Jesus is that many of them were done in a variety of ways in order to show that the power from for healing was not from a specific method 
that Jesus did, but from himself and his father. Because here's the thing, if Jesus did the same way every time, we would probably do it the same way every time. We would copy the method and the power source for the healing is not in the method. So Jesus did it in different times, different ways, and that sort of thing. And I think Calvin's right on that. I think he's nailed it. So the the question that Courtney asked and the question that Phoebe asked boils down to this. Why did it take two times to heal this man's eyes? And it's an excellent question because this is really the only two-stage healing by Jesus in the entire Bible. And there's there's you know lots of small theories on this. In fact, one of them I read recently that was kind of a head scratcher is that the Bible compares uh, people to trees often. And when this man saw people walking around in trees with no roots, he was seeing the way Jesus saw the people, that they were like trees with no roots. So it was like a spiritual insight thing. I uh, I don't think that's a very good theory. Um, and you'll find a lot of kind of things like that around where just people, it's like they're taking, you know, daggum shots in the dark and, and just completely guessing. But I've actually heard two really pretty sound theories on what's going on here. And uh, I favor the second one, but the first one uh, is put forward by somebody I respect and a ton, R.C. Sproul, and uh, another guy, Ray Pritchard. And basically, that answer is that the blind man needed two touches to demonstrate how important spiritual vision is and how it takes some time, it's not instantly, to attain it. Pritchard connects this episode to the episode above it in Mark 8, where the disciples are on the boat, and they don't have any bread, and Jesus tells them, hey guys, beware the leaven uh, or the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod, and they're like, oh yeah, okay, Jesus, and then they kind of talk about it amongst themselves, and they're like, I guess he's saying that because we forgot bread, maybe he's hungry or whatever, and then Jesus is like, hey, what are you guys talking about bread for? Don't you remember? We fed all those people with bread miraculously. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? In other words, do you not get it that I'm not talking to you about literal bread and literal yeast? Well, Ray Pritchard believes that this two-stage healing is a demonstration of the way that spiritual vision develops in us. The disciples were spiritually blind, and they were spiritually blind for a long time, and it took them a while before they could actually spiritually see. And so this instance is a illustration by Jesus, essentially, of the fact that it takes us a long time to get that sort of spiritual vision. And this is what Pritchard says. He actually has a very long article on it. I've linked it on our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com, but let me just read you part of his summary. He says, It's possible to have eyes and not see very clearly, and that's precisely what Jesus was saying to his disciples. Do you have eyes and yet not see what I'm saying? Do you have eyes and not see clearly who I am? Cloudy spiritual vision afflicts every Christian to some degree. None of us sees as clearly as we would like, for now we see through a glass darkly. That's a reference to 1 Corinthians 13. Or we see as if we are looking at a cloudy mirror. Eugene Peterson catches the meaning, says Pritchard, with this paraphrase. We don't yet see things clearly. We're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist. 
That's 1 Corinthians 13, 12 in the message translation. Pritchard continues, that applies to all of us, squinting through a fog, peering through a mist. That's what this blind man experienced when he was partially healed. He saw men as trees walking. No one sees life with perfect clarity. All of us have spiritual nearsightedness to one degree or another. Now, I suppose that is certainly a possible interpretation of what's going on here. And it would be accurate, and it would not be contradicted by other passages, and it would sort of fit uh, the whole discussion of vision that you see in Mark 8 and Mark 9. But I tend to believe that Jesus, or even Mark, in writing this episode, would draw our attention to this a little more clearly if that was really kind of the point that was being driven, uh, that we were being driven towards. Uh, but it, it could, that could really be, it. that could be the answer. My answer, and I, th- uh, I didn't make it up or anything, but my answer is somewhat more mundane, but I think a little bit more plausible. I think there's a big, big clue to what's going on here in verse 23, and it's something very unusual. And Mark tells us that Jesus took the blind man of Bethsaida by the hand and brought him out of the village. Now, that's a strange thing for Jesus to do. Why did he do it? The Bible doesn't tell us. We're speculating. But my theory is that Bethsaida was very similar to Nazareth. If you'll recall, Jesus traveled to Nazareth, his hometown, in the middle of his ministry. The people there mocked and rejected him. And they're like, oh, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? You know, we he grew up here. What's he doing? All this miracle stuff. Oh, my goodness. It's just Jesus. And Mark closes the account of Jesus's village to Nazareth, visit to Nazareth with this chilling passage. This is Mark 6, verse 4. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his household. He was not able to do a miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he was amazed at their unbelief. That's a sobering, sobering passage. So the general unbelief and lack of faith in a particular area, like Nazareth, somehow prevented many miracles being done in that place. Interestingly, it appears that Bethsaida was a similarly dull spiritual place, in a different way, but but in a similar way, too. And So consider Jesus' rebuke of that village, Bethsaida, in Matthew 11, verse 20, which says, He proceeded to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. I believe that Jesus took the man out of town before he healed him because of the lack of spiritual receptivity in Bethsaida. That two touches were needed before full healing happened seems to me to indicate that a Nazareth-type dampening situation was occurring. Now, a big objection to that theory here could be that I, it sounds like I'm saying that there was something that Jesus could not do. 
And I do suppose that is indeed what I'm implying. And that gets us into murky waters theologically. Jesus was fully God and fully man while on earth. I believe in and absolutely affirm what theologians call the hypostatic union. I stand with Athanasius. That said, we know in scripture of at least two places where there seems to be, uh, geez, I struggled to get the right word here. Uh, limits? Is that the right word? On the omnipotence of Jesus. For instance, the Mark 6, 5 passage we just read is one. It says he was not able to do many miracles there. Now, Jesus is fully God, fully omnipotent, but perhaps, uh, as Philippians talks about, emptied of deity in some sense that's very difficult to understand. Jesus was able to die on the cross. Jesus was not able to do miracles in, in Nazareth. Jesus also did not know the exact date and hour of his return. Only the Father knew that, according to Jesus. So I think what's going on here in Bethsaida is that Jesus, there was two touches needed because of the atmosphere of unbelief and unrepentance. Take this answer, my friends, with a salt shaker or two, much more than a grain of salt. I love the question. I'm very comfortable speculating on questions like this as long as we are clear that we are engaging in speculation. It is dangerous to confidently answer questions like that, this, with our opinion or with something that we have deduced from the Bible or something like that. Look, I'm a big Sherlock Holmes guy, and I love it when Sherlock puts the clues together and solves a mystery, but this is totally different territory. Questions like these, which begin with something like, why did God do this? Or why did Jesus do that? They have to be answered with many disclaimers because the fact of the matter is his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are higher. And therefore, we're honestly not going to be able to effectively guess his motivations very well when we aren't directly told why he did something. So I'm guessing, I'm speculating. I think there's some scriptural evidence that points us in the right direction, but I certainly could be wrong. Love the question. Love grappling with it. I just want to be really, really, really clear that uh, figuring out the motivations of Jesus, figuring out, out the motivations of God is um, treacherous waters. So take it with, again, maybe a whole case of salt shakers. Great question. Thank you, Courtney. May the Lord bless you and keep you and your family. Genesis chapter 40, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. After this, the king of Egypt's cupbearer and baker offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guards, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guards assigned Joseph to them as their personal attendant, and they were in custody for some time. The king of Egypt's cupbearer and baker, who were confined in the prison, each had a dream. Both had a dream on the same night, and each dream had its own meaning. When 
Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they looked distraught. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were in custody with him in his master's house, Why do you look so sad today? We had dreams, they said to him, but there's no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, Don't interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph. In my dream, there was a vine in front of me. On the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms came out and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. This is its interpretation, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. In just three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. You will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand the way you used to when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well for you, remember that I was with you. Please show kindness to me by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. For I was kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing that they should put me in the dungeon. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was positive, he said to Jacob, Joseph, I also had a dream. Three baskets of white bread were on my head. In the top basket were all sorts of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is its interpretation, Joseph replied. The three baskets are three days. In just three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from off of you and hang you on a tree. Then the birds will eat the flesh from your body. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he gave a feast for all of his servants. He elevated the chief cupbearer and the chief baker among his servants. Pharaoh restored the chief cupbearer to his position as cupbearer, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But Pharaoh hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had explained to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Job chapter 6 verse 1. Then Job answered, If only my grief could be weighed, and my devastation placed with it on the scales, for then it would outweigh the sand of the seas. That is why my words are rash. Surely the arrows of the Almighty have pierced me. My spirit drinks their poison. God's terrors are arrayed against me. Does a wild donkey bray over fresh grass or an ox low over its fodder? Is bland food eaten without salt? Is their flavor in an egg white? I refuse to touch them. They are like contaminated food. If only my request would be granted and God would provide what I hope for, that he would decide to crush me, to unleash his power and cut me off. It would still bring me comfort and I would leap for joy and unrelenting pain that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. What strength do I have that I should continue to hope? What is my future that I should be patient? Is my strength that of stone or my flesh made of bronze? Since I cannot help myself, the hope for success has been banished from me. A despairing man should receive loyalty from his friends, even if he abandons the fear of the Almighty. My brothers are as treacherous as a wadi, as seasonal streams that overflow and become darkened because of ice and the snow melts into them. The wadis evaporate in warm weather. They disappear from their channels in hot weather. 
Caravans turn away from their routes, go up into the desert and perish. The caravans of Tima look for these streams. The traveling merchants of Sheba hope for them. They are ashamed because they had been confident of finding water. When they arrive there, they are disappointed. So this is what you have now become to me. When you see something dreadful, you are afraid. Have I ever said, give me something, or pay a bribe for me from your wealth, or deliver me from my enemy's hand, or redeem me from the hand of the ruthless? Teach me, and I will be silent. Help me understand what I did wrong. How painful honest words can be. But what does your rebuke prove? Do you think that you can disprove my words, or that a despairing man's words are mere wind? No doubt you would cast lots for a fatherless child and negotiate a price to sell your friend. But now, please look at me. I will not lie to your face. Reconsider. Don't be unjust. Reconsider. My righteousness is still the issue. Is there injustice on my tongue? Or can my palate not taste disaster? Mark chapter 10 verse 1. He set out from there and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Then crowds converged on him again, and as was his custom, he taught them again. Some Pharisees came to test him, asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He replied to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses committed a, permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. But Jesus told them, He wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts, but from the beginning of creation God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples questioned him about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Don't stop them, because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these." Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. After taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and blessed them. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand and went away grieving because he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. 
The disciples were astonished at his words, and again Jesus said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astounded, saying to one another, And who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Peter began to tell him, Look, we've left everything and followed you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brother or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more. Now at this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields with persecutions too, and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise after three days. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. What do you want me to do for you? he asked them. They answered him, Allow us to sit at your right and at your left hand in glory. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Oh, we're able, they told him. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those to whom it has been prepared." When the disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many warned him to keep quiet, but he was crying out on the moor, Have mercy on me, son of David. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called the blind man and said to him, Have courage, get up, he's calling you. He threw off his coat, jumped up, and came to Jesus. Then Jesus answered him, What do you want me to do for you? Rabboni, the blind man said to him, I want to see. Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has saved you. And immediately he could see and began to follow Jesus on the road. Romans chapter 10 verse 1. 
Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning Israel is for their salvation. I can testify about them that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, since they are ignorant of the righteousness of God and attempted to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for the righteousness to everyone who believes. Since Moses writes about this righteousness that is from the law, The one who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes from faith speaks like this. Do not say in your heart who will go up to heaven, that is to bring Christ down to you, or who will go down into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. On the contrary, what does it say? The message is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. This is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. Since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message. So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Yes, they did. Their voice has gone out to the whole earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that lacks understanding. And Isaiah says boldly, I was found by those who were not looking for me. I revealed myself to those who were not asking for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and defiant people. My brothers, may we and sisters, may we not be a disobedient disobedient and defiant people. Instead, confessing with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believing in our heart that God raised him from the dead, let us inherit the glorious gift of salvation and go on, go on to follow the Lord with our lives. God bless you and Godspeed. We'll see you tomorrow.